Well, good morning, everybody. Want to extend a special welcome to those of you that might be new to us. Uh, my name is Scott, and it is my privilege to serve as the lead pastor of Ward Church, which is one church in two locations. And I want to say hello to all of you joining us from the Farmington Hills campus today. And I'm so grateful for this technology that allows two locations to come together under the same teaching. Because we are one church, we all sit together under the same teaching each week. And we are working our way now through the New Testament book of Acts. I want to begin by asking you a question. Uh, how many of you think of yourselves as courageous people? And I want to do this by a show of hands, both here and in Farmington Hills. Uh, how many of you, by a show of hands, think of yourselves as courageous people? Where are the people of courage? Thank you. Um, how many of you wanted to raise your hand, but you lacked the courage to do so? <laughs> yeah. Now let me flip the question around. How many of you would like to be thought of as a person of courage? Can we see your hands today? Yeah, all of us. Uh, you and I live in a place where courage is a prized trait. It is an admirable quality uh, where you and I live to be courageous, to be brave. But fear affects our lives more than we would care to admit. And so we tend to pretend to be braver than we actually are. Uh, anxiety is a special form of fear, and anxiety levels are the highest they've ever been in our country. We are anxious and fearful. Now, uh, remember uh, the, the, the Cowardly Lion, um, everyone, everyone know this, even younger people, you know this show, The Cowardly Lion, who, who wants to be thought of as being brave, but he's not, and he knows that as the king of the forest, he's supposed to be courageous, um, and so he pretends. Uh, he challenges people, put him up, put him up, right? He makes uh, inspiring speeches about courage. He just doesn't possess any himself. And in many areas of our lives, we can be infected with the cowardly lion syndrome. Uh, we know we're supposed to be courageous, and we're not, so we aren't completely honest. We give other reasons, other excuses, uh, reasons that we didn't apply for the job, that we didn't ask the girl out, that we didn't join that small group, that we didn't try out for the team, that we didn't audition for the play, that we didn't ask the all-important question, that we didn't run the marathon, that we didn't start the new business, that we didn't go back to school, that we didn't share about Jesus. We give other reasons, but the honest reason is that we were afraid. Now, some fear is a good thing. Fear is a natural mechanism designed to prevent you and me from doing dumb things, right? You don't want to be completely fearless. A person who has no fear whatsoever, uh, they end up in the hospital and in YouTube videos. Uh, the problem is when fear keeps you from doing what you really want to do, what you know you really ought to do, what you know God is calling you to do. In an honest moment, you and I would have to admit that the number one thing that holds us back vocationally, relationally, and spiritually is fear. You've probably logged some time around church and around spiritual life and you know all the basics. And my guess is there's part of you that would love to launch into deeper levels of relationship with Jesus and to the fullness of the Holy Spirit and to greater obedience to what Jesus instructed. Part of you wants to do that. And part of you is afraid of what would happen if you did. 
afraid that you might become a fanatic or uh, even worse, might be thought of as a fanatic or that you might have to give up something that's really important to you or that maybe you wouldn't be able to live up to what Jesus asks. And fear holds you back. This is supremely true when it comes to talking about our faith, to sharing our faith with other people. You have people in your family, in your workplace, people on the sidelines of your kids' and grandkids' soccer uh, games that you genuinely care about. And you really believe that Jesus can give them peace beyond understanding, a confidence beyond their abilities, and a hope beyond the temporary. You really believe all of that, and yet fear stops you from saying anything from engaging at any level of spiritual conversation. Uh, Think about this answer in your mind. Uh, How many conversations about politics have you had in the last seven days? Get a number, how many conversations about politics you've had in the last seven days. And now ask yourself, how many conversations about Jesus have I had in the last seven days? We are more confident, more comfortable talking about politics than we are talking about Jesus And that ought to really say something to us. When it comes to the business of of sharing the good news of Jesus, we are often plagued by the cowardly lion syndrome. We know as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be courageous, and we might even talk a big game about evangelism or what we want to see happen in the world today. We just don't actually do it ourselves. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid that we might do it wrong. We're afraid that people might think that we are weird. We hold back. And again, last mass confession here today. How many of you in the course of your lifetime have ever had the cowardly lion syndrome when it comes to spiritual conversations, when it comes to talking about your faith, when it comes to revealing the hope that you have? How many of you had an open door? The conversation was kind of going that way. You had a perfect entry point, but you held back. You stopped short. You wimped out because you were afraid. Anybody willing to admit that today? Yeah, all of us. Fear keeps us back. There is no thrill like being used by God to help someone meet Jesus. You know, when you and, when you and I were first uh, exploring faith in God, relationship with God, uh, there were probably multiple people who played a role in that. There were people who sowed some seed into your life. They had conversations. They stimulated your interest. They lived lives that were attractive, and, and uh, they asked key questions. And there was somebody probably who was with you when you actually crossed the line of faith because you, you, were, you were ready to make a commitment of some kind. And I've been privileged to play different roles in different people's spiritual journeys. And I remember the first time uh, I had the thrill of knowing what it was to actually be with someone when they gave their life to Jesus. I was about 14 years old. And my friend Steve spent the night at my house after an activity. And we were in the basement in sleeping bags and the lights were out and we were chatting. Now, I wasn't especially courageous because uh, Steve had been with me to some church events and he was spiritually curious He drove a lot of this. He asked a lot of questions. But I remember in in the darkness of that night thinking, uh, um, I should call the question and just said to Steve, Steve, is there anything that would stop you from making a commitment to God through Christ right now? He said, you mean right now? I mean, yeah, right now. And he said, no. And I remember getting, getting, I felt a little nervous. I can't explain. I felt a little nervous. My palms got a little sweaty and uh, it was completely dark. And I said, well, maybe you want to pray something like this. And I guided him through a prayer in which he invited Jesus into his life and he gave his life to Jesus and accepted the forgiveness and the powering of God. 
And I remember it was completely dark, but I remember just feeling such incredible joy that my friend had, had made this step that would alter the trajectory of his life and of his eternity. There's no thrill like that. And yet, we stop short all the time. A fear holds us back from doing what ultimately would be in the best interest of our friends. One of the amazing subplots of the entire book of Acts is the transformation of a cowardly lion named Peter. Now, you remember there were times when Peter talked a big game and he sounded very courageous. Jesus said one time to the apostles, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to deny me. And Peter said, not me. All this bravado will never be me. And then three days later, he denies Jesus three times and he's running away in fear. And there's this fascinating exchange between Jesus and Peter in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16. Jesus is talking to to Simon and he says to him, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus gives to Simon the nickname the rock. Rocky, that's what Peter means. Peter means the rock. You will be the rock. Now, Peter wasn't a rock. Peter was a yo-yo. He was up and down. He was hot and cold. He was all over the place. But Jesus calls him the rock. And I can imagine Peter going back to the other uh, disciples and saying, you know, Jesus gave me a nickname. He called me the rock. And one of the other disciples saying, he should have called you the roller coaster. And one of the other guys saying, you know, they they actually haven't met, uh, they haven't invented roller coasters yet. And okay, yeah. Uh, He was no no rock. Um, Peter was up and down, back and forth. But then in Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, Peter becomes the rock. He wasn't the rock when Jesus called him the rock, but he becomes the rock. He becomes a stable, resilient, and bold extender of the gospel of grace. And you can see the transformation before and after. Let's look back a little bit. Uh, This says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, Peter was with the disciples, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Peter was there, Jesus came and stood among them. They're, They're... they're so fearful, they're, they're locked up in a room together. That's the before. Now look at Peter just a couple weeks later. This is Peter speaking to a crowd of people. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. A few weeks earlier, he is hidden not wanting to be around anyone, and a few weeks later, he's out among the people, and he's talking so boldly, so confidently about Jesus. He's bold, not for boldness sake, but he's bold because he now has the heart of Jesus for people. Again, maybe he remembers that time where Jesus said to him, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, love the people that I love. If you love me, love my children. Uh, Before I came to Ward Church, we served uh, uh, in the little college town of Mount Pleasant, just north of here. And one day, we got a phone call at the office from a father whose daughter was a student at Central Michigan University. And his daughter had uh, broken down in her car. She was on the side of a road somewhere in the town of Mount Pleasant and called her dad, who's somewhere else in Michigan, three and a half hours away. Dad's very concerned about his daughter. Of course, he is. He's got a father's heart. 
and he doesn't know what to do. He's too far away. So he, he, he finds a church in the city of Mount Pleasant and calls the office and says, my daughter is stranded on the side of a road somewhere there. You don't know her. You've never met her. You don't know me. You've never met me. But my daughter is in trouble. Will you help? And as fate would have it, the senior fellowship luncheon was happening simultaneously down the hall. And an army of grandparents went out to meet this girl <laughs> and helped her get her car to the garage and took her out to lunch and, and uh, got her where she needed to be. Um, and it occurred to me that God works this way often. Uh, God calls us, figuratively speaking, God calls and says, my, my daughter, my son is stranded on the side of a road somewhere. This is a child of God by creation and by God's love, a child of God, and he taps one of his other children over here and says, I want you to go to them. You may not know them. You may not care about them, but they matter the world to me. And, and Peter now shares the father's heart. He loves the people that God loves, and it motivates him in brand new ways. And watch, watch, his, watch his courage here as he stands before the people. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Now, this phrase, the rulers, elders, teachers of the law, this refers to the Sanhedrin, the most powerful group in the land. The Sanhedrin was made up of the high priest and 70 other uh, men. Now, remember, in those days, there was no separation of church and state like we think about it in our day. Uh, the Sanhedrin was over all of life. So in that group, there were the elders... The elders were the landowners, the nobility, they had the economic power. And then there were the scribes, the scribes were the scholars and the rabbis and the priests, and most of the Pharisees belonged to the scribes. There were the elders, the scribes, the teachers of the law and the priests. These were the religious leaders of the day, the bureaucrats. So the religious, political, and economic power is all centered in this one body. This is the most powerful group in the entire nation of Israel. And there's another reason this group would have been especially intimidating to Peter and to John. Let's flip back in the Bible a little earlier. At the time of Jesus, at daybreak, the council of elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, this is the Sanhedrin, met together and Jesus was led before them. This is the same group that convicted and condemned Jesus, and now they stand in judgment over Peter and John. Very intimidating group. They want to know how Peter and John healed that crippled man outside the temple on that day when Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walk. And the crippled man stands to his feet, and there are all kinds of witnesses, uh, and so they want to find out, and so they bring him in for questioning. Let's continue the story. The Sanhedrin had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? 
Now remember, this is, this is, they're asking this of Peter, the cowardly lion, who ran from people, who locked himself behind doors, who was asked by a servant girl, one who had no power at all, and he crippled with fear and denied knowing Jesus. And now he's questioned by people who hold all the power, they hold all the cards. How will he respond? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, this phrase occurs throughout Acts. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Right, talk about courage. He says, if you really want to know how, how this happened, and I'm not twisting your arm, but because you're asking me, you're asking me, Peter, how this happened, then I will tell you, it was Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. That's how this happened. It was Jesus. Such, such boldness, and this is coming from a guy who fled in fear a few weeks earlier. He goes on with a speech before the Sanhedrin, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now this word salvation can also mean physical healing, and so Peter here is talking about the physical healing of the crippled man, but he's talking about more than that. He's saying Jesus is the hope for the human race. Jesus is our hope. Uh, and the story goes on. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were what? Unschooled, ordinary men. They were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now those two words, unschooled and ordinary, in the Greek, one of the words is the Greek word idiotes. Idiotes. You want to guess what English word we get from the Greek word idiotes? These guys are unschooled idiots. They've never been to seminary. They never received any of the training that these 71 men had. And yet, they're confident. They're bold. They're making sense. They're logical. We don't know what to do with them. Let's go on. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. The Sanhedrin decides, we're just going to ask them to not talk about this. And the Sanhedrin, again, they're super powerful. People generally do what the Sanhedrin says. We'll just tell them to stop talking about it. And so they do. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Problem solved. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now again, Peter's talking to the religious leaders and he's asking them, religious leaders, do you think it's okay for us to obey you rather than God? 
what would you counsel people? We have to say what we have seen and experienced. Now remember, again, if you've seen the movie The Wizard of Oz, uh, where the wizard is trying so hard to intimidate Dorothy and her friends, and especially the cowardly lion who runs away a few times in fear. Uh, he's just shaking the whole time. And there's a great moment uh, in, in the movie where the curtain gets pulled back and falls down, and you see it's just a little guy in the booth flipping the switches, and there's the big uh, wizard head on screen. Am I the only one that's seen this movie? You've seen big, uh, and, and the big uh, head on the screen says, ignore the man behind the curtain, and they see they've really got nothing to be afraid of. The big intimidating thing they were so afraid of ha- has no power. It's just a little guy behind the curtain. Very often, the things that we fear the most, when we look at them accurately, turn out to be not so intimidating at all. It can first look very big and formidable and scary, but it turns out it's just smoke and mirrors. There's nothing really to be afraid of at all. Just a little guy behind a curtain. I don't know what scary thing you face in your life right now. I don't know what intimidates you right now or fills you with fear. But I do know that very often, when you come to see things accurately, you will see that it's not so formidable at all. Ultimately, it's just smoke and mirrors and nothing to be feared. For Peter and for many of us, it's the sharing of the good news of Jesus that seems so daunting. Peter, who was a cowardly lion a few weeks earlier, is filled with boldness, and he realizes, as it's possible for you and I to realize, that there is no force that can be allowed to stop the irrepressible good news of Jesus. Not threats, not persecution, not the threat of death, not the elimination of the early church, not embarrassment or awkwardness or failability at the task. I was thinking about our churches that we support in the nation of Mali in West Africa and what extraordinary bravery those pastors and believers have there. Uh, I've been to the nation of Mali and uh, was with those pastors as we traveled in the outer villages. And we would get out of our cars and kids would run over and the whole, everybody come out of the village to come meet us. And they were especially interested in me. And they kept pointing at me and saying, Pumwe, Pumwe, Pumwe. And I asked our guide, what does Pumwe mean? And they said, it means white man. They had never uh, seen somebody as fluorescent as me. Uh, or somebody shaped like me, and the crowd gathered around, really, and then our host, they would preach the gospel of Jesus, and at some point, they would say, we have to leave now. Uh, to this day, I don't know why we had to leave right now or what nation they got, but I know they, they serve in a, in, a, in a Muslim nation, in a, na- in a nation with other uh, uh, kind of animistic religions that it can be very dangerous for them and for us, and we would leave. And I, so I learned later that I was just... I was just the, uh, the, 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 the dangly, um, pudgy, little colorful uh, lure. Uh, I was the bait to draw the crowd, and they preached the gospel, and then we got uh, out of there. Those pastors face threats that I have never known. And it's curious that the gospel is spreading the fastest and the church is growing the fastest in places of the world where it is most persecuted and most threatened and in places where the church is most comfortable and has the least threats, that's where the church is growing uh, the smallest. Peter realizes that all they can do is threaten him, they can lock him in prison, they can beat him up, they can put him to death, that's all they can do. 
There's nothing that really frightens him anymore. I think I uh, may have told you the story one time about the college professor who back in the 1960s, during another period of tumultuous cultural change, he was giving his lecture in his sociology class in one of those big lecture halls, and a student at the back of the lecture hall, mid-lecture, yells out, who cares? And the professor kind of went on with the lecture, and then later, this guy in the back yells again, who cares? And the professor said, young man, another outburst like that, and you're out of this class. And they want to get what, guess what the guy said? Who cares? And the professor said he stopped there because he knew where it was going to go. If he had said, you know, understand, if I throw you out of this class, you're not coming back in. You're expelled from this class altogether. He would have said, and you know, understand, if you're out of this class, you might be thrown out of this university. You're out of this university altogether. He would have said, and if you're out of this university, you're not going to get the job you want in the field you want. He would have said, it's so frustrating <laughs> dealing with somebody who doesn't care. He's untouchable. And, and as annoying as it is to have someone who doesn't care, you hear traces of the apostle Peter and traces of the apostle Paul when people would threaten them and they would say, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, we're going to trash your reputation. And the apostle said, who cares? Our reputation is nothing. We died to that a long time ago. And you don't understand, if you keep talking about Jesus, uh, we're going to beat you up. The apostle would have said, who cares? We've been beaten before. You keep talking about Jesus, we're going to throw you in prison. The apostle said, who cares? We've had a really great prison ministry. Some of our best work is done in prisons. If you don't shut up about Jesus, we're going to take your life. And the apostles could confidently say, who cares? For me, death is not even frightening. For me to die is gain, the apostle Paul said. Peter comes to realize there's nothing you can do. I, I'm not afraid of any of those things anymore. And he walks with this confidence. Peter and John are released from the Sanhedrin. Their interrogation is over, and they gather back with their friends. And look what they pray for. Uh, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to, to God, Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. These bold apostles prayed for more boldness. These people who were sharing about Jesus prayed that God would enable them to share Jesus all the more. Nothing could stop them. And the final line we'll look at today. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. Boy, there's that word again. You and I, can really become bold, confident champions of the irrepressible, life-altering, eternity-changing good news of Jesus Christ. It was true in the first century. May it be true in ours. Let's pray together. Well, God, thank you for the written record of the earliest church then and now you work through mistake-making, fallible people to bless the world. Do for us what you did for Peter and for the apostles. Give us confidence to act in spite of our fears. 
Give us love for your children who have lost their way. Give us wisdom to recognize open doors for spiritual conversations. Let us see accurately that those things we fear hold no real power. Pour your Holy Spirit on your church once more, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the whole church said together, amen, amen.